Hey, it's executive editor Stephen Lacey. If you're hearing this on The Carbon Copy, you know me as the host. If you're hearing this on Catalyst, you know me as the voice that is sometimes confused with shale. And I've got some news, so don't fast forward. Postscript Media, the company that I co-founded that produces this podcast in collaboration with Canary Media, is soon going to be rebranding as Latitude Media. It will be a B2B news and analysis outfit covering the new frontiers of climate tech. We're going to still be partnering closely with Canary Media on the Carbon Copy and Catalyst podcast, so rest assured these pods will continue. But we will be launching a new B2B news site covering business and tech trends across advanced grid tech, artificial intelligence, carbon removal, long-duration storage, and more. We've been hiring reporters and analysts, and you can go to latitudemedia.com to find out more when we launch in October. And that brings us quickly to two events coming up in October, Transition AI New York and Canary Live Bay Area. Uh, Transition AI is hosted by our team at Latitude Media. It's the premier event charting how artificial intelligence will shape utilities, renewables, and storage developers, energy traders, and EV charging integrators. Transition AI New York is a one-day conference and workshop. It's in Manhattan. It'll be on October 19th, so mark your calendar. It'll feature top experts from Microsoft, GE Digital, AES, National Grid, Oracle, and a wide range of founders, executives, and academics who are building AI strategies right now. Plus, we're going to have a detailed market map of the industry that we've been working on. And our podcast listeners get 10% off if you go to transition-ai.com or follow the link in the show notes. You can get your ticket and use the code PSPODS10 on checkout. Transition AI New York, we'll see you October 19th. And for the folks in the Bay Area, our partners at Canary Media are putting together a live event on October 3rd. It's going to feature a roster of top journalists and experts that are handpicked by the Canary Media editorial team. It's at Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. And uh, they're going to bring those experts together to talk about all things energy transition, inflation reduction, act implementation, and uh, tech innovation. We recently played this popular conversation between futurist Ramez Nam and journalist David Roberts. That was recorded from Canary Live Seattle. So we got a great response from that episode. And if you liked it and you want to network and you're in the Bay Area, get your tickets for Canary Live Bay Area. Again, it's on October 3rd in Berkeley. We've got a link in the show notes. And now, on to the episode. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. What ERCOT has accomplished here is truly remarkable. So Texas has around 40 gigawatts of installed wind. This is just under 30% of all U.S. wind power capacity. So the defining feature of ERCOT's interconnection process is that they don't rely on the interconnection process itself to identify and pay for grid upgrades. So I'm off coffee at the moment. It's a long story and I do not want to talk about it. But hot tip, you know what's a great alternative? Talking about interconnection reform. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? 
On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so I've said this before, and I will say it again. I think that interconnection, both of generation and of load, is rapidly becoming the single biggest barrier to the energy transition. Full stop. Hopefully, that'll explain to you why I wanted to do this episode, because I will freely admit it is wonky. But so is this issue. Basically, here's what we know. If you're a new electricity generator looking to connect to the grid, odds are high right now that you're either trying to connect solar or wind or batteries or a combination of those three. And it's taking you longer and longer and becoming more and more expensive for you to do so. Sure, that's a problem in and of itself in the context of fleet turnover, right? Like if we're going to be retiring tens of gigawatts of coal and replacing it in large part with clean power, we sure do need that clean power to be able to connect. But the reason that I'm so obsessed with the problem goes beyond that. Once electrification really starts to take hold, and we're adding millions of electric vehicles and heat pumps and battery manufacturing facilities and green hydrogen production facilities and direct air capture and, oh, I don't know, data centers to the grid, and we're trying to double or triple our total load on the grid, but we're already facing a bottleneck in interconnection before any of that happens at scale, you can imagine what might come next. But the interconnection issue is not a simple one, and the suite of solutions has to involve some regulatory reform. So that's the piece that we're going to talk about today. Tyler Norris has been thinking about this problem, previously as a solar developer trying to interconnect himself, but now as an academic thinking about it at the higher level. And he wrote a great paper about what sounds like a pretty simple idea, which is basically bring the process that has worked in ERCOT, the Texas electricity market, to the rest of the country. But of course... This is electricity, so nothing is simple. Let's hear it from Tyler. Tyler, welcome. Great to be here, Shale. Thanks so much for having me. Let's get wonky about interconnection. Before we get super wonky about it, I'm interested in your high-level perspective on like the state of interconnection in the U.S. today, particularly in light of the fact that until fairly recently, um, you were involved directly in interconnection by working at a renewable project developer. So you you probably have seen it evolved to some degree over the past few years. So how would you characterize where where we are at today and like what the past few years have been like? Yeah. Well, Shale, I think it might actually help to start with an analogy here before we get too far into the weeds. So imagine with me that it's 1953, right? We've won the war, the economy's moving, um, automotive technology is advancing really quickly, and there's a demand for a lot more interstate commerce. The interstate highway system hasn't been built yet, Right? There's a patchwork of smaller highways that connect each state. So President Eisenhower announces a new program right, where trucking companies that want to transport goods across states can apply for the right to do so. Once they apply, they'll go through one or two years of study. These will be really intricate studies. Right, We'll, we're, we'll consider detailed forecasts of future traffic, weather patterns, wear and tear on roadways, and we'll consider a bunch of different extreme contingencies. And the output of these studies will identify where each trucking company's fleet is likely to contribute to traffic congestion. And when it does, they'll be assigned a portion of the costs, 
required to expand those highways. And the idea is the trucking companies can't access the roadways until they've paid 100% upfront for these future highway expansions. And so President Eisenhower goes out and he announces this and he says, you know, this is expected to hopefully, maybe, if all goes well and all the stars align, lead to the development of an interstate highway system. And so it's an absurd analogy, of course, but I think it's not entirely dissimilar to how we've been approaching transmission interconnection in the United States. And so I think a lot of folks have seen the numbers on the Q backlog, uh, but I think they're, they're really um, instructive and worth just reviewing. So in 2022 alone, the backlog of projects in interconnection queues waiting to connect to the grid grew by 40%. It brought the total to just over 2,000 gigawatts. 80% um, of this growth, growth was driven by solar and storage projects. And for comparison, we have around 1,200 gigawatts of generation capacity in the U.S. that's operational. So of this 2,000 gigawatts, 1,350 around is generation capacity. Storage is about 700 gigawatts of that. And at the same time, we've seen, and this has been documented by Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, the time required to interconnect has approximately doubled from around 15 years ago. Um, so it used to be that the typical duration from, um, from interconnection requests to commercial operation was around two years or just under, and now it's, it's four years or more, and those timelines seem to be growing. And, you know, we've seen various pauses and entire interconnection queues. I think the most prominent example is in PJM. We've seen that elsewhere. Um, but, you know, the, the queue backlog is a really good measure but I, I think what we haven't seen until recently is a really clear comparative metric between markets that are using different interconnection rules to compare the outcomes. And we now sort of finally have those metrics, and I think they're, they're really instructive. Right, and I think that's what we want to spend a bunch of time on is, is talking about which markets, if any, are, are kind of doing it right or closer to right and what we might learn about how to do it in the rest of the country. Before we get to that, so high level, I think folks at this point probably appreciate the dynamic you're describing, which is we're trying to connect. There, there are lots of developers trying to put lots more, mostly renewables, mostly solar and storage on the grid all over the country that ballooned in the last year, probably in part because of the IRA, I suspect. Uh, interconnection, capacity to get through the queue, the pace of getting through the queue has not improved. And so you have way more trying to connect. You have the same capacity of throughput of studies, for example, and timelines have gotten longer. Uh, everything has gotten more challenging. And now we're sitting on this gigantic queue backlog. Uh, FERC, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which, which regulates all the ISOs and RTOs, did, I mean, interconnection reform has been a thing people are talking about for a long time. So FERC did institute an order pretty recently, order 2023, that I think has gotten sort of mixed reviews in terms of the impact that it might have on this challenge. Can you just briefly outline what that FERC order does and your thoughts on the degree to which it's going to solve this problem? Yeah, so FERC order 2023 is a, is a meaningful step towards reform. Um, it was a, a very comprehensive rulemaking process, uh, an incredible effort on the part of the FERC commissioners and their staff and so many uh, so many experts and stakeholders that contributed to that comment process. 
And the biggest thing that it does, right, it tries to speed up the interconnection process by moving from serial-based uh, queue management to cluster study queue management. And what that basically means is traditionally the queues have been studied on a project-by-project -project basis, you know, one project at a time. And what the idea is with clusters is that you'll do this in grouping studies, right? So every year you'll, you'll combine all the projects that have submitted during a certain window. You'll study them all at the same time. You'll look at the combined impact and hopefully you'll be able to identify the necessary upgrades relatively quickly and then allow those projects to advance. And the hope is that you might be able to utilize this interconnection process to cover the cost of large upgrades by splitting those costs across a larger number of projects. And so that's kind of the, the working theory here. Um, there are other important reforms that were included here. So reducing the number of speculative projects by imposing different requirements on interconnection customers to, to try to, um, to discourage what we might call speculative projects. Uh, there are other reforms trying to speed up. So for example, uh, limiting the reasonable effort standard that currently governs the completion of interconnection studies and imposing uh, penalties on transmission providers for missing deadlines. Uh, there are other, there are other you know, meaningful efforts here. Uh, there are reforms to, the, to the, what's called the proportional impact method. So how do you allocate costs when they're identified in the form of network upgrades? Uh, there's an attempt to improve information access by requiring transmission providers to publish heat maps um, of their available transmission capacity. And then there's an effort to incorporate new technology into the interconnection study process. Uh, one of the most significant steps here was to evaluate the use of alternative transmission technologies. And so this is now required. So transmission providers will be required to look at the use of grid enhancing technologies uh, to attempt to mitigate network overloads. Um, and then a few other pieces here and there. They, uh, FERC has mandated that um, interconnection studies reflect uh, the, the operating assumptions of electric storage um, and to, to make sure that they're not um, inappropriate assumptions being used there. And then a few other elements. But really, the, the main story here is around this hypothesis that transitioning from a serial-based queue to a cluster-based queue is going to speed up the interconnection process and, and do so at a lower cost. And the principle there is, if I'm on the other side of that and I'm getting request after request and I have to do a study each time, that's going to take me a lot more time with my fixed resources than it would to wait for 10 or 20 requests to come in and to do one bigger cluster study. That's basically the idea. That's the hypothesis, Shale. And... There are some reasons to suspect that this can improve the interconnection rates in certain jurisdictions. Um, what I think is fair to say is that we don't really have good empirical evidence uh, to prove or disprove this hypothesis yet. There, there have been uh, transmission providers that have shifted to cluster studies in recent years. Um, I was very involved in one of those efforts for, for Duke Territory and some other utilities in the Southeast. And the truth is, I, I don't think we've seen conclusive evidence that it is, in fact, uh, improving the, the pace of the interconnection process. 
And the reason for that, which I know we'll get into more detail, is that there are more fundamental issues with the interconnection process in most of the U.S., especially outside ERCOT, that unless they are resolved, are likely to contribute to ongoing delays. Right. So if I can characterize your overall view here, it's that this FERC order is significant, it's impactful, but it's not enough. And, and in fact, the impacts may be more muted than you, than you would hope. And so we should absolutely implement this order, but in addition, there's going to be more reform needed. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it was really well captured by Commissioner Clements and her concurrence to the order, which I encourage everyone to read if you're interested in digging deeper. Um, but she said almost exactly what you said verbatim right there, Shale, that this is a meaningful step, um, but there's a lot more to be done. So let's talk about what else could be done. And in particular, we're going to talk about Texas. So as probably a lot of folks who listen here already know, Texas is the only state in the U.S. that has its own grid. And so things are different in Texas. And it sounds like you think that Texas is actually a model that we might think about replicating or at least partially replicating in the rest of the country. Let's Before we talk about what Texas actually does in terms of interconnection, let's talk about the impacts that it has had. So what are the, you know, how has Texas performed in terms of interconnecting new generation relative to the rest of the country? What ERCOT has accomplished here is truly remarkable. And I think maybe it's helpful to start by just capturing the total installed capacity just to contextualize, right? So uh, total installed capacity for for when to start, you know, this story is better known, but uh, so Texas has around 40 gigawatts of installed wind, uh, it's three times more than any other state. So Iowa is the next at about 12 and a half gigs. Um, this is just under 30% of all U.S. wind power capacity. So that, that story is relatively well known. Uh, solar is, uh, is a newer phenomenon. And so ERCOT uh, is now at about 17 gigawatts of utility scale solar installed. The state at large at around 20 gigawatts of all solar Um, So it's now number two in the U.S., just behind um, California. And the utility scale side now appears effectively equivalent with California. Texas has just blown past every every other state. You may recall at one point that North Carolina was was number two in solar. Um, You know, even as of 2018 or so, Texas was substantially behind. And just in a few years, they have interconnected a a massive volume to, to surpass North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. And so on an annual capacity additions basis, uh, so in 2020, I think, is really where it starts to take off. So Texas interconnects 2.5 gigs of solar in that year. 2021, it explodes to 4 gigawatts. And then 2022, it's another 2.6 gigawatts, at least in ERCOT. And so over the course of three years, Texas added around 10 gigawatts of utility-scale solar, which, I mean, that number alone is more than the installed solar capacity of every state except California. And how much of that can be just attributed to the size of Texas? It's a big market, obviously, bigger, much bigger than Iowa, for example. So I know a part of it is going to be what we're going to talk about, which is how they manage interconnection. But is some of it just Texas is big? There's no doubt that the size of Texas is part of the story here, but I think a comparison is instructive on this front too, right? So PJM is substantially larger, at least in terms of 
overall peak load, which, you know, there are different, different ways you can measure this, but uh, the, the overall peak load in PJM is approximately two times that in ERCOT, and yet PJM's interconnection rate overall for all resources over the past two years has been approximately 2.5 times less than ERCOT. Um, so in that sense, you know, this, this is not just about the overall size of Texas. All right, so ERCOT's doing something right. So what is ERCOT doing? Like, walk us through ERCOT's interconnection process. The defining feature of ERCOT's interconnection process is that they don't rely on the interconnection process itself to identify and pay for grid upgrades. And this enables them to interconnect projects much more quickly and at much lower cost. And what allows them to do this is that all generators in ERCOT are energy-only resources subject to economic and security curtailment, which means that ERCOT can turn them off for effectively any reason, um, according to market dispatch protocols. And so, so ERCOT manages its grid constraints by curtailing generators as necessary uh, with, with that market dispatch. And so these generators can connect to the grid very quickly at relatively low cost, but with the understanding that they may be curtailed to mitigate any grid overloads. And you know this, of course, this doesn't mean that ERCOT doesn't uh, pursue grid upgrades. It's just that they do it via separate transmission planning process, and their market structure enables them to really clearly measure these congestion costs that arise because of the system's inability to deliver lower cost uh, available electricity to load. And so, you know, a simplified example might be helpful here. So say you have a, a city, it's supplied by two large transmission lines. You know, the first line connects to an aging coal plant, you know, with a high cost of electricity that you don't want to run very much. The second line connects to several new large-scale wind and solar power plants that sell power much more cheaply. It's a hot summer day. The load ends up exceeding the capacity on the second line. And as a result, the city is forced to rely more on the coal plant and the cheaper wind and solar generation gets curtailed because of the overload on that second transmission line. And so this is a simplified example, but this is occurring um, you know, very often across ERCOT, these congestion costs, they're very meticulously documented and reported. And then ERCOT is able to use that market information to identify the most valuable set of incremental upgrades with the highest economic value. And, you know, it, it's worth noting that there are some really significant limitations to ERCOT's transmission planning process. And there are a lot of concerns that it doesn't uh, incorporate the the longer term benefits of these upgrades and the result is that they aren't they probably aren't pursuing as many proactive upgrades as they should um, but I think you know the overall structure here is one that can be improved upon and provides potentially a model for other jurisdictions to think about mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern that's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. 
By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so if I can try to repeat it back to you in layperson terms, basically the deal, so what ERCOT does is they say, okay, I'm going to, in one office over here, I'm going to you know, use all my market data and determine where I need to do transmission system upgrades. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And it's an independent process from the interconnection queue. Meanwhile, on the interconnection side, I make a deal with any generator. And it's basically, come on in, go ahead and interconnect. I'm not going to you know, run a ton of studies and slow you down and uh, take a long time. You're, you're welcome to do it. You just have to wear the risk of me saying that I'm going to curtail you which, of course, if I curtail you, then you're, you're not getting paid for the generation. So you're going to bear more market risk on curtailment. But in exchange for that, I'll let you connect, and, and you're welcome to wear that risk. I'll give you all the data on the market to tell you, you know, to be able to make that decision intelligently. Um, and in some ways, that, that seems very much like a, it's a very Texas-like thing, right? It's kind of a very free market thing. Like, you want to wear the risk generator? Go ahead. Uh, maybe I'm going to curtail you, but go ahead and interconnect. Do, am I thinking about that right? Yes, that, that's exactly right, Shale. And it's it's worth noting too, though, that you know ERCOT does uh, provide an assessment of the network upgrades that would be necessary if your project was required to alleviate them uh, to comply with reliability standards. So they are still conducting interconnection studies that are you know fully compliant with NERC reliability standards, and they do actually identify upgrades that would be necessary. But what they're saying is that, you know, you're not required to address these upgrades as part of your interconnection process, but this is what you should be aware of so that you can incorporate this into your own assessment of the curtailment risk and then ultimately incorporate that into, you know, the cost at which you can sell your power. Right, like the results of that study is sort of a, for the generator, can be kind of a proxy for the likelihood of a certain magnitude of curtailment. Have we just in empirically, given that Texas has been running it this way, are there generators that we can point to that have said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take the risk and that they've really made a mistake? Like are there generators getting curtailed an inordinate amount of the time in some places? I'm sure, Shale, that that is the case for certain generators that um, perhaps didn't uh, fully incorporate the results of their studies into their uh, their curtailment risk analysis, or you know, conditions change. Right, other generators show up. Um, there, there are other um, aspects that the topology of the system can change. So I've I've no doubt. Right, there there are generators that are experiencing more curtailment than they estimated. On the flip side, there are very likely generators that are experiencing less than what they anticipated. And as you said, this is kind of the the free market mindset, right? You are the master of your own destiny. We're going to empower you with as much data as we can to make an informed decision and to quantify the risk you're facing. Um, But, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? What we're seeing is that 
a very, very large number of generators uh, believe that they are able to manage this risk, and that's contributing to, to this higher interconnection rate. So it seems very logical to me on its face. Let's contrast it with what happens in the rest of the country. So I'm a, I'm a prospective generator, and I submit an interconnection request outside of Texas. What happens in that case? Yeah, so I think the most important thing to understand here for your listeners is what's called the system impact study. And so what this does is it assesses the impact to the grid of the power flow from the proposed generator in interaction with the rest of the system. And so transmission providers use electricity simulation software to conduct this power flow analysis. Uh, one of the most common software pa- packages is called Tara. And so what they do is they, they look out several years at a specific fixed point in time. It's called, a, to get jargon, it's called a steady state circuit analysis. So it's a single snapshot of the balancing authority in time. They load your project in and all other generators that are committed to the system, you know, all the existing operating generators, all those that have executed interconnection agreements, and then others that are uh, ahead of you in queue. And then they run all these power balance equations for power flow simulation to capture the supply, the demand, the transfer of power throughout the system. And then what they do is they run all these contingency analyses where they look at um, these sort of extreme scenarios where different elements of the system go out, right? So a transmission line goes out, a transformer fails, uh, and, and other scenarios. And so they test a bunch of these contingencies to see if your generator contributes to a network overload that then uh, the question is then whether you have to resolve that overload. But that's kind of, the, that's what's going on with the power flow study in a nutshell. To, to be clear, you know, the SIS, they also, it also looks at um, voltage um, and dynamic voltage and stability. So those are important elements. But really, I think the, the, the main story here about the system impact study is looking for these network upgrades as a result of power flow overloads. I guess high level, you know, when you hear this with fresh ears, I feel like the obvious thought process is, okay, the Texas mechanism, the ERCOT mechanism, seems much simpler from the generator's perspective. You can easily imagine how it's faster and you get more resources interconnected. On the other hand, this system impact study driven process in the rest of the country seems like it is it's kind of more bureaucratic and slower but probably designed to ensure higher reliability so you would imagine if that's true and if it's successful at that that the network in Texas would be less re- reliable all else equal than the network in the rest of the country do you have any evidence of whether that is or is not true what you say here is, is really important to acknowledge, right? So in, in every electricity market in the U.S. outside ERCOT, you, you do not have an energy-only market. So you also have capacity markets. And this is what's called you know, the resource adequacy framework. And so when you study these projects under these sort of extreme contingencies, uh, what you're doing is you're trying to assess them for what's called deliverability, and once they, if they can pass all those contingencies uh, and either don't trigger network upgrades or they do and then they resolve those upgrades, 
then they can qualify for capacity compensation and contribute to these resource adequacy requirements, right, which in aggregate take the form of these planning reserve margins that state, you know, that indicate how much reserve margin every balancing authority has to have. And there's a whole process that goes into determining those reserve margins. But this is, so there's this resource adequacy market framework that governs uh, essentially every electricity market in the U.S. outside of ERCOT. So we're unlikely to see other markets go in an energy-only direction. And the question is whether we can incorporate some of the learnings and the process improvements that ERCOT has achieved into this alternative framework where you have both energy and capacity markets. And it's not, it's not a simple task um, it looks like there there are meaningful improvements that can be made, but that is kind of the the challenge that's upon us right now is to figure out what can be adapted into the framework that exists outside ERCOT. It's not intuitive to me. Maybe you can explain a little bit more why the fact that there are capacity markets outside of ERCOT makes it more difficult for them to implement Texas's interconnection process. Like, yes, there is a I guess the measurement of the capacity value is driven by these system impact studies, so you need to do them in order to determine capacity values. It's something like that. Otherwise, like why why not just keep your energy plus capacity market, but implement a version of Texas's, you know, go ahead and interconnect and wear the curtailment risk thing. I, I think you're right that it is possible for transmission providers outside ERCOT, even with capacity markets to implement an approach that would be energy only to allow for much faster, cheaper interconnection while pursuing uh, proactive grid upgrades necessary to relieve congestion and ensure uh, resource adequacy and reliability and to do that via a separate transmission planning process. And so it's possible, it's, it's gonna require one or more transmission providers to, to get creative uh, and it's tricky, right? So there's a lot of kind of devil in the detail on how you structure this in the interconnection study process uh, outside ERCOT, especially in the framework of these cluster studies. Uh, but this is the this is the detail that we need to work through. But I agree with you. There there should be no inherent reason why you couldn't adapt this even into uh, markets with with capacity markets. So I think in some ways it is kind of intuitive given how you've described the process, but maybe we can spend a minute more on on exactly why the process that the interconnection process outside of Texas with the system impact studies and so on uh, leads to such inefficiency and growing queues and long timelines. So I think there are a lot of a lot of concerns with respect to the inefficiency of this existing approach outside ERCOT, and so. You know, first, it's, it, it appears to be temporally inefficient, right? So just, it takes a lot of time to work through these very detailed, intricate studies to identify these overloads and then allow for interconnection customers to decide whether or not they are going to relieve those upgrades. And it creates the possibility of a lot of cascading failure within those interconnection um, studies. So there's a there's an aspect where it's, so it's temporally inefficient. 
it's bureaucratically inefficient, right? And just that it requires a lot of study resources. You know, we are increasingly using the very limited number of transmission planners and engineers to conduct these massive interconnection studies because we're relying on the interconnection process itself to identify and fund network upgrades. And then it's economically inefficient. What we're seeing more and more is that uh, it will save ratepayers money if we pursue these upgrades via separate proactive process. And that's for a couple reasons. One is you don't have to go back incrementally and continue upgrading the system in response to interconnection customers. You can identify a set of low regrets or least regrets upgrades and, and do it all in one batch. Um, so, so from an upgrade cost standpoint, it's inefficient. And then from the standpoint of accessing lower cost generation with lower production costs, it's also inefficient because it's creating an additional barrier to allowing, in many cases, lower cost resources to get online and supply the system. And then I think it's worth just mentioning one more. It's a little bit more debatable, but it's this concern about reliability risk that when we're retiring so many resources and we have now such substantial uh, incoming load growth, we, we really need to get more capacity uh, online onto the system more quickly. And if you're creating unnecessary barriers to entry, um, it could introduce a reliability risk. Okay, so if you could, if you're in charge of PJM or MISO or KISO or some some market outside of Texas, and you could wave a somewhat realistic magic wand. In other words, you can reform the interconnection process, but you're not going to do the fundamental structural market reform. Like you can't turn, you know, PJM into an energy only market all of a sudden. How would you distill like what what could be done within the bounds of reality? Yeah. Yeah, so assuming that you're still going to have generators pursuing the interconnection process to receive capacity rights, you have to figure out a way how to study both energy-only resources in these interconnection studies alongside these capacity resources. And this is tricky, but there really there should be a, a relatively simplified approach to this. And so there are a number of experts in FERC's rulemaking process that recommended that instead of one big combined, you know, integrated cluster with with both energy only and capacity resources, that you, you just do this in two steps, right? So you you start off with a cluster that's energy only, and at the end of that process, the the interconnection customers will make a go no go decision on whether they're going to proceed. And, and then, you know, you take all those and then you, you run the second stage, which includes all the capacity resources. In that study, you, you actually, you turn off the energy-only resources because, again, they're, they're, not, um, they're, they're not receiving capacity and they're not contributing to, to overloads because they'll be cur- curtailed in real time. So pursuing a, a two-step study process with energy-only first, followed by capacity resources, I think is, is a relatively simple one that can be can be adopted quickly. There's also uh, reforms that can be made to uh, what's called the impact threshold. So this is the, the question of, you know, when do you actually assign upgrades even to energy-only resources? And there was a lot of debate in the FERC rulemaking around what is, what is the proper impact threshold. And, you know, we've seen 
reasonable thresholds work in, in various markets um, around, around 20%. So I, th I think there's a case to be made that uh, if you're taking this approach, you can relax that impact threshold. That's something that transmission providers can do on their own. And then, you know, there, there, are, a few other, there are a few other details here that we could go through, but the, the biggest additional piece is improving the proactive transmission planning process and not relying as much on the interconnection process. And there, you know, we could have a whole uh, podcast, of course, dedicated to proactive transmission planning. There's a separate FERC rulemaking going on, considering various options to improve it. But one of the, one of the simplest things is just looking out over a longer period of time to estimate the cost savings that occur uh, from different transmission upgrades so that you capture that in the cost-benefit analysis in order to identify you know, the least regret set of proactive upgrades. Yeah, in other words, it should be a cost-benefit analysis, not just a cost analysis. Exactly. All right, well, sounds like we should have a future conversation on proactive transmission planning. But in the meantime, Tyler, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much, Shale. Really great to be here. Tyler Norris is a PhD candidate at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. He's also a former VP of Development at Cypress Creek Renewables. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.